It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Bill O'Reilly. <laughs> I'm Tommy Vitor. <laughs> <laughs> Tommy Vitor is in studio. Uh because he is a new resident I'm of a, Los Angeles. An L.A. resident. I just want to say, if government did anything as efficiently as the L.A. Parking Authority gave out tickets, we would have no problems in this country. Oh, welcome, my friend. <laughs> I am two down in like two days. Welcome to the parking no, club. Thank you. It's, the, it's the minority report with those people. <laughs> they give you a ticket when you think about it. Yeah. <laughs> Park somewhere for 11 minutes. Here I am. On the pod today, we have the author of Teen Vogue's thigh-high politics column, Award-winning journalist, Lauren Duca, just won an award at the Shorty Awards last night. Very cool. Yes. We don't know what those are. I, I it is, uh, They're social media awards. Oh, cool, it. cool, cool. There you go. I got it. No bullshit conversation. I no don't bullshit conversation. Uh, by the way, we walked into the studio today, and on, on all of the cable screens was Barack Obama. <laughs> oh, so nice. And I was like, are we, maybe we're back in another era, and like after he finishes speaking, Morning all... Joe's going to say he didn't emote enough. <laughs> it was didn't... all a terrible dream, and then we're going to treat each other better. You know, it's like... It's going to be like, did he reach out to John Boehner or not? Was Maybe Donald Trump is the ghost of Christmas future. <laughs> the scariest ghost of them all. Um, he's speaking around while we're recording this. I don't think he's making any news, so <laughs> then I just, the only, I just I just made sure he will make news. Yeah, the only, the only news <laughs> is, made sure is the contrast. Um, anyway, subscribe to all of our pods. Love it or leave it. There was a great show in Austin on Friday awesome time. with Beto O'Rourke. I can say I pronounced it correctly now. Yes, Beto and I played a game called Cruiser Crockett, and we actually had a song composed by our our official band sure sure uh a davy crockett ted cruz cover um there you go among many other reasons to check it out (laughs) anyway subscribe to that pod save the world what's going on pod save the world this week we're going to talk about what the hell is going on in france and what the hell happened in turkey uh, oh, okay. We're going to go hard Europe this week. Good, because I don't think we'll delve too deeply into French politics. That's today. okay. Also, on what, oh, the only thing I wanted to say about the Turkey is I can't believe Donald Trump, who has ongoing business interests in Turkey, didn't refer to the Armenian yeah. genocide as a yeah. genocide. But then again, neither did Democrats. Shocker. So yeah. Right. So maybe. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, with friends like these, uh, subscribe on Marie Cox's podcast. And guys, we are about to launch a new podcast with our friend, DeRay McKesson. You know, we've been pod. sitting on this news for a long time. We have. It feels good to be able to talk about it. So, yeah. um, it is going the the teaser and the and you'll be able to subscribe will be up on iTunes Tuesday, April twenty fifth. Today's the twenty fourth. Yes, Tuesday, April twenty fifth. Yes. So, um, you can go on iTunes and you subscribe to Dre's podcast, and we'll be launching after that. I I think we've now settled on the title. Um, Pod Save the People. Probably. Now you've jinxed it, but it's probably going to be called Pod Save the People. <laughs> Thanks to Twitter, gave some gave Dre some great feedback. Anyway, we're very, very excited about this. It's going to be focused on social justice, social justice activism, organizing, culture. Uh, Dre's going to have some excellent guests. It's going to help people um, you know, figure out calls to action and stuff like that. We're very excited about it here at Cookie yeah, Media. It's going to be great. Um, okay. Let's go to this week's agenda. Actually, actually before we get Ooh. into 100 Days... Shut just down. Actually, to myself. Actually, I just actually <laughs> myself. <laughs> Before we get into all that, uh, how, can we talk about the AP interview? Oh my god, I, Tommy, we were talking about this a little bit last night. So, uh, did you read it? Love it. I saw the excerpts. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have to say, look, I wasn't completely surprised by it 
because basically any time Donald Trump gives a lengthy interview, we get like a cascade of unintelligible ramblings, like punctuated by insultingly obvious lies. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which I, is sort of the but it's that that was sort of my feeling. Like I was I was about to click on it to read like the whole thing, and I thought it's very long. Why? Why? He's just rambling. He doesn't know why he's saying these things. Yeah. They're not they're not tethered to his views. He's just filling the space when he's asked a question. He's a dotty old racist. Like I and there and he doesn't view words as like you know, one thing that was really interesting that Donald Trump said the other day was like he was like, Why would I call Chinese China a currency manipulator when I'm in the middle of doing a deal with them? And it's like for him, he's like, I don't understand why people take my words seriously. Yeah. Like, what's your problem? Well, maybe, maybe because the press told us not to. But right. like, yeah, I mean, his like absurd hyperbole is kind of funny in the context of a big rally when it's like him one on one with an Associated Press reporter in the Oval Office, and he says, "Some people said it was the single best speech ever made in that chamber about his joint session address." Like, like who do you think you're How about kidding, like, pal? My interview with Chris Wallace had the best rating since 9/11. Those are the only facts he had a good handle on. <laughs> well, you know, but if they weren't, best he, since he, he said 9.2 million people turned into an interview he was about seven million people off on that yeah he he didn't even know what was in his own hundred day plan it was um it's not great i mean it just it goes to show you at this point in the trump presidency we're talking about 100 days it's like the guy is not some like secret plotting fascist he's just like he's he's incompetent and he doesn't know what he's talking about and he has no desire to learn what he's talking about and he's just sort of in awe of the office but more in a way that's like oh man i didn't know everything was going to be this hard i thought it was as easy as everything you see on cable tv but it's much harder than cable tv makes it out to be there's something he keeps taking pictures behind the oval office desk and i don't know if that's how unusual that is it feels unusual to me like when i picture barack obama taking a picture it's in front of the desk or it's Standing, in action yeah. but donald trump takes pictures behind the desk like the way jay-z took a picture in the situation room because it looks like he's on a tour like <laughs> and and i and i think subtly donald trump himself anyone with a camera in his vicinity the picture is still holy fucking shit Yep. I'm president. Holy yep. shit, Donald Trump is president. It, he views it as a game. It's all gamesmanship. It's posturing. It's whatever. It, 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 but it's unfortunate that that has trickled down to his staff because there was a long political piece about the press office and the way they view the press. Oh, there was yeah. an anecdote in there that they lie. They they play a game where they try to slip the biggest lies they can into stories on background or wherever they do it, and they think that's fun. The White House press office lies for sport. If I had done that, Robert Gibbs would have lifted me up by the scruff of my neck, ripped off my badge, and walked me out of the gates and never spoken to me again. Like, this is deadly serious and, stuff. And that was not a, uh, a fake news reporter. That was a conservative activist, by the way. Yeah, that was the source for that. Two of them. And like, hey guys, Sorry. if you can't figure out which way an aircraft carrier is going, maybe don't brag about lying to the press to Politico. Like, get the basics right, you morons. Their, base, their, 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 their uh, rationale was, well, they're going to print whatever they want anyway, so we might as well have some fun with it. It's a, it's, it's a group of people... It, it's a funny thing. Like you, I, I, I'm learning a lot about the, the relationship between intelligence and morality that like... Some of these people are too dumb to do the right thing. Like they've never thought about how hard these jobs should be, how to care about them, why it's important. Like these are these are people who have no business in these yeah. jobs because the only people willing to work for Trump are the are the worst, craven, ridiculous, failed out Republican yeah. operatives. I, and I have sympathy for them. I realize how hard those jobs do are. Do not have sympathy for them. I have sympathy Incorrect. for how difficult the comms office job is when you have an incompetent senior staff. Right? They have no adult supervision from the president down. But do not brag about lying to the press and think that that's cool. 
Day 95, we're still on the fence. Having a hard time. <laughs> day, still 90, on the fence. Uh, day 95. <laughs> it's so fun to be back in the studio. I can see your faces. I can That's great. I, I cannot believe so we are, so Three months it's been. So we're headed to the 100 days of Trump's presidency, the first 100 days, which is a completely, uh, Trump is correct, it's a completely artificial, bullshitty deadline that every administration totally. deals with. But anyway, um, coinciding with that, more importantly, is... If they do not pass a government funding bill by the end of the week, the government will shut down. It will be what, the first time that the government shut down when one party is in control of um, both houses of Congress and the presidency, but somehow they might be able to do that. So negotiations between Democrats and Republicans in Congress to avert a shutdown were, by all reports, going fine. Leaders said they were close to a deal. Everything was going smoothly until... Donald Trump stepped in and said he wants funding for the wall included in the budget. Um, Experts say the wall would cost $21.6 billion and take three and a half years to build. Um, And not work. And not work. Trump tweets uh, yesterday, (laughs) eventually, but at a later date so we can get started early, Mexico will be paying in some form for the badly needed border wall. So Mexico's getting a wall and layaway. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And then Jeff Sessions said that Mexican people, not Mexico, the country, will pay because we'll take back some tax subsidies for them. So that's their other spin yesterday. Also, just what a... Talk about Donald Trump going full politician. What a bullshitty tweet. What happened to the what happened to the straight talk, man? It's, Eventually uh, <laughs> in some form. It was um I wanted I want grift. I want to imagine in this week like what Donald Trump the candidate would be saying about Donald Trump the president in his first hundred days. Can <laughs> totally. you imagine Donald Trump the candidate when he heard a tweet like that? Like, can you believe that? It's bullshit. It's bullshit. <laughs> what what is he talking about? He's he's a liar. He's a liar. He's corrupt. He's not gonna lie. Can't trust these people. Can't trust these people. But you know, it's very weak. It's very weak, very very weak. Like, but Mulvaney is out there. His OMB directors out there saying, you know, elections have consequences. We should fund his top priority. You guys told us Mexico was gonna pay for it. I We're was, not stupid. I was actually thinking that <laughs> I'm not good at uh, I'm not good at three dimensional Senate Senate uh, uh, Senate uh, chess, and nobody is because it's stupid. But like, what if we introduced a bill that said, Senate Dem- we will support spending the wall dollar for dollar for what the Mexican government contributes. <laughs> we'll, we'll match. It's matching funds. You so want a wall? Idea. We'll do it. That's We're a great in. idea. Any dollar. Mex- you get Mexico to put a dollar in, we put a dollar in. Well, so the we'll question, put in two dollars. The question is, is this a bluff? Um, I would say yes, because on the Sunday shows, which is where we get all our news from, uh, ask whether they'll sign a bill that doesn't include wall funding uh, just about every Trump official said we're not sure. Yeah. So. So that's a yes. I mean, what are you so talking this about? Not happen- so it, it seems this. My bet is they are going to try to get some money for border security in quotation marks into the government funding bill. Just nebulous border security, not specifically for the wall. And the Trump people will call that a win. And everyone else will say it's fine because we didn't have wall money specifically and we'll all move on. The government will be funded. I think. I'll Who knows? Though, Unless they want to shut the government down over the fucking wall. Which, I, go ahead. Yeah, I, I have a, my view on this pretty simple. If they want to shut the government down over funding for this wall, then they should shut the government down over this wall. Be because you said Mexico was going to pay for it. We said you're a dumb fucking liar. <laughs> you won and you shouldn't have. And now you're making us pay for it. You can go fuck yourself. We'll keep your promises for you. We're not paying for your goddamn wall. Yeah, I mean, I think Republicans are already... I mean, this is not just Democrats united against this idea. There's Republicans who are against it, too. And, and one of the reasons why is if you look inside the Washington Post poll, among the people who say Trump has not accomplished much, 47% pin the blame on him, a quarter blame congressional Republicans, 7% blame Democrats. I, that's obviously not directly applicable here, but I think it's instructive. <clears throat> in terms of how people might view a government shutdown in the context of them controlling everything. And just so people know, because a couple of people were asking this on Twitter, um, 
the the reason that they do have to negotiate with Democrats on this funding measure is because, yes, Republicans control the House, but they need 60 votes in the Senate to pass the bill. So Democrats could filibuster the bill, um, which, of course, last week, some conservative commentators like fucking Hugh Hewitt was out there saying, like, it's Chuck Schumer. He's the one who's going to cause the shutdown. The Democrats should be blamed for the shutdown. Um, nice before try. we get there, they don't even have Republic- enough Republican votes to fund this wall. Like, Marco Rubio was out there this weekend saying we shouldn't have the wall in this bill. Marco Rubio. Mark Sanford was out there saying the same Good to thing. Good hear from Marco Rubio. Like, <laughs> all the all the Republicans that represent border states uh, for some reason don't want the wall. The people that are closest to where the wall would be, mm. those Republicans don't mm. want it. So it doesn't seem it doesn't seem like yeah. it's going to happen. Um, the other thing they're trying to do in this bill is uh, the Obamacare cost-sharing subsidies, which we've talked a lot about. Uh, Trump tweeted, Obamacare is in serious trouble. The Dems need big money to keep it going. Otherwise, it dies far sooner than anyone would have thought. What he's really saying there is... Nice healthcare system. Be a shame if something were to happen to it. Right. Because <laughs> that would mean if he if we do not fund these Obamacare cost-sharing subsidies, the insurance market will probably melt down. Millions and millions of people will lose access to healthcare. At, at least premiums will go up massively. Massively. Uh, you know, and, and this is a small... <laughs> We've, the Republicans have done this before. Donald Trump is doing something new, but we should put it in the context of, yet again, a Republican administration or Republican Congress is threatening the country's health to get votes, right? Like, this is sort of like the debt ceiling. Like, we'll take the country into bankruptcy and we'll, we'll, we'll put us in default if you guys don't, uh, don't compromise with us. Like, these are, this is a threat to the country to get votes. Like, it's, it's, him, it's him putting a gun to the head of the healthcare system. Yeah. It's, also, it's like a double threat, too. Like, give us the wall or we will melt down the insurance market and shut the government down. Yeah. <laughs> just, like, here, let's sweeten the deal. We'll do one more bad thing to you. Like, it's just pretty... I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah. But, I, think, I think we're going to get a boring government funding bill, and that's going to be it. We'll just have, a, we'll have a Jared, Jared and Ivanka, you know, Ivanka will whisper into the president's ears, and Jared will just pick up the president's hand and sign the bill, and everything will be, <laughs> It'll be okay. okay. It'll be good. Uh, to your point in the intro, Trump is right that the 100 days marker is arbitrary. It's bullshit. It's silly to focus on it. Um, he's not helped his case here by having his staff plan yeah. giant meetings around rollouts around 100 days and then leak those meetings and whatever. <laughs> but that said, one thing you learn quickly in the White House is that a four-year presidential term is like 18 months in reality of time where you could actually get things done when you counted recesses, re-election, like all the things. And the fact that they squandered 100 days with nothing done is... It's really going to so, hurt him. It's, yeah. it's interesting, though. I was thinking about this, too. Like, So Mulvaney has been out there being like, we've passed more bills. People don't realize that we've done more executive orders. People don't realize it. And it's um, I don't think the picture is as positive in terms of wanting Donald Trump to fail as we'd like it to be. Like, it is true there there have been no big, you know, <laughs> banner pieces of legislation. But they have passed a number of regulatory rollbacks. They have signed a bunch of EOs. They did get Gorsuch on the court. Like, we should not pretend that this has been well, that. We we have succeeded in stymieing them far more than they expected, and that's really impressive. But they're getting they're getting they're getting points. Well, Gorsuch is something that you can't undo. Um, we always realize that the problem with executive actions when Obama took them is that they could be undone by someone from the opposite party. So that's the both good and bad thing. The good thing about executive orders is you can get them done. It looks like you're doing something. They can actually have an effect. The bad thing is. You elect someone new, they all go away. Right. So what? what the regulatory repeals are except, real. Except, yes, but everything, mm-hmm. everything except Gorsuch can be undone by a Democratic president. Yeah, he's done damage. No, uh, I wouldn't not, say he's not the anything. not the congressional votes to undo Obama era regulations. Those are real. Those are those are law now. Of the congressional votes. Yes. Right. Right. So, but a Democratic Congress could undo. Of course. Right. 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 
I'm just saying, like, yeah. The, but the, but legislatively, he hasn't, you know. Yeah, no. No Agreed. wins for legislative stuff. But yeah, he's doing damage left and right. Um, what's going on with tax reform? Trump had said that there's going to be a huge announcement on Wednesday, which like scared everyone who works for him and everyone in Congress. Yeah, everyone, his own staff was like, what are you what? talking about? He's saying it's going to be the biggest tax cut in history. Um, of course, he's got a problem here. He's got also his aide saying multiple things out there. Mnuchin saying long-term. He's saying we're going to pass long-term tax reform that's going to like simplify the tax code, reform the tax code, all that kind of stuff. Mulvaney's out there saying maybe it's just a short-term tax cut. <laughs> this is his quote. You can either have a small tax cut that's permanent or a large tax cut that's short-term. Which is What's true. your plan, buddy? <laughs> you said you're going to do this on Wednesday. Well, and their problem is if the tax cut is scored as adding to the deficit in the long term, then um, you need 60 votes, which means you need Democrats, which means it's not really going to happen. So if it adds to the deficit in the short term, you can do it the reconciliation and only have 50 votes. So this is going to end up being a big, they're going to try to push a big short-term tax cut for companies and for individuals. And they're for rich call individuals. For rich people, um, you know, skewed heavily towards the wealthy. They'll probably throw some kind of middle-class bone in there. Um, and then they'll call it a win. That will add massively to the deficit. And once again, we're allowing this cognitive dissonance where Republicans go out and say, well, we're going to grow our way out of this deficit problem because there will be increased economic activity that will recoup all this. No, there's clearly a spending side or a uh, a revenue side uh, deficit problem in our country. And, and this is going to exacerbate it. I mean, I don't understand yeah. how these like it's it's like we're back in the 80s. It's the starving. The, we're starving the beast again. It's so it's just very so old. Feels very old at a time <laughs> when very old politics in the in the NBC Wall Street <clears throat> Journal poll, 57 percent of people said they want more government help in their lives. So this is bad politics. It's the same. It's this. It's bad. It's bad politics for everyone except the uh, Republican members of Congress, because yeah. it's the only thing. They all, members. Yeah. The only thing they all agree on is that they want to cut taxes for themselves and their friends. Well, and the Venn diagram of what they agree on and what's in Trump's interests overlaps there because Trump at this point is getting desperate for any sort of win. So he doesn't care what the policy is. He doesn't care what the vote is. He just wants someone to say that something he did was a win. I feel as though I introduced the Venn diagram and then you've taken it and run with it pretty often. Yeah, no, it's, it's amazing that you were the first person to ever mention Venn diagrams. Congra- <laughs> it's actually called the Love It Venn diagram. Con- yeah, congratulations. That means, the I'm just saying, I just think it's it real, sounds like a, me when you say it. I like it. Look, you're around me a lot. You're adopting some a, of my it's a, uh, my it's a pioneer. He's a pioneer. <laughs> you've got a pie chart. Like I'm a pie chart here. I'm a pie chart here. Pie chart here. Um, Get it? Healthcare. Yuck. I'm going to just keep going. <laughs> Even though I'm going to get, we're going to get all the like, is there tension on the podcast questions? <laughs> and there is. <laughs> Are you guys fighting? <laughs> Someone said that that the reason that we're not on Thursdays is because Dan and I don't get along. That that we're like uh, we're oh. like bandmates that don't talk anymore. Weird. Which is you know no. Is there truth to it? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're the, you and Dan are the oasis of this podcast. Yeah. Okay, next topic. <laughs> are they fucking us with? Are they fucking with us again on healthcare? Um, the, the, the people who cried wolf on healthcare reform, they are back at it trying to, uh, make the, make, make Trump care worse than it was before. Um, so there, there's rumors that there, uh, has been negotiations between the more moderate Tuesday group in the house and, uh, the freedom caucus. It looks like where they're settling on is everything that was in the original Trump care bill stays as awful as it was, but they want to say, States are going to be able to apply for waivers, which will be very easy to get, to get rid of protections for pre-existing conditions and essential health benefits. So, so the reason, Acha, the Ryan Ryan Care, what uh, John refers to as wealth care, well, uh, wealth care, hashtag wealth care. 
uh, Trending didn't topics. pass was the House Freedom Caucus didn't think that the regulations were lifted enough. And the more moderate members felt as though it was not generous enough, right? As a, as a bill, it would do too much to kind of hurt their constituents. This is a compromise that doesn't do anything to fix anything that made this a Obamacare redux that just made life harder for middle class people. It doesn't do anything to change that. All it does is allow states that already didn't expand Medicaid, that already have made it harder for their constituents to get health care, to make it even harder. That's all it does. It just makes everything worse. Mm. Why? I, I don't understand how... I don't understand how that passes. Like, this bill as a concept was rejected. And now the whole thing is like, it's the same exact thing, but Alabama won't have any rules. So basically what they're saying is insurers can charge people with pre-existing conditions whatever they want. There's no limit. It used to be that they have to charge people with pre-existing conditions the same as they charge healthy people. So they did a study on this. Um, uh, the Kaiser did a study on this. Estimated spike in premiums if you have lung cancer, that's about you're paying about 73000 more a year. Breast cancer, 28000 more a year couple thousand more a year for autism, asthma, diabetes, and you're paying about 17000 more a year in premiums if you're pregnant. So that's what would happen if this new one passes. Um, Ryan has sort of walked back the urgency of the vote on this and said, don't expect a vote this week. Trump in his press conference last week was like, the bill's getting better and better. Everyone loves it. Many people are saying it's wonderful. Many people are saying it's good. I want to get it done. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. The, uh, so I don't know where quote, this goes. I don't know the how these people vote incredible. for this. The Trump quote, it's getting really, really good. Many people really like it. And it's getting better and better and better. You know, <clears throat> the bill's awful. It, it would be devastating. I'm skeptical of their ability to pass this. But every time they charge up this hill, it makes me really nervous. Because, like, we, you know, we went into this presidency thinking ACA <clears throat> was dead. Right. I mean, except for Barack yeah. Obama, who was like, everyone chill the fuck out. The, the rest of us around, like, sort of observing this, we're worried because they have all the oh, votes. Oh, back in 2009. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but, yeah. And, like, I, I just don't know. I, I don't know that we can. We should not let our guard down is all I'm trying to say. Like, I, have, I, I said this from the beginning of this debate. Like, never underestimate the ability of Republican politicians to be unbelievably craven and do something stupid. Right. Like, the. the, the <laughs> so you're right. Right. The, the, the thing that we would think protects us that. That anyone with self-interest wouldn't want to pass this and anybody who cares right. about their constituents wouldn't pass this uh, may not apply. And they'll just fight. They'll just it'll it'll somehow get through. So what's to be done? All we know is that the, the thing that these people are most likely to respond to is fear of losing their jobs. And so I do think these time, I mean, we, we, they're just getting back from recess today. There's another two weeks of very successful town halls where these all these Republican members heard how fucking awful Trump care was. And the people at the town hall were very well versed in high risk pools and pre-existing conditions and high all the details. Terrible policy. The pre-existing condition thing, I think, really resonates. Like you see that people at, at these town halls are like they have pre-existing condition. People have pre-existing conditions. Tens of millions of Americans have pre-existing conditions because we're all human beings and our bodies break and then we want health care. Everybody wants the same fucking thing. Yeah. So the, so the. So the uh, the do out here is to keep calling and keep and keep protesting this because, like Tommy said, these people could vote for it. Um, and but, then, and uh, if a bill comes out, if an actual bill comes out, we just have to go crazy. <laughs> yeah. Um, did you guys see too that uh, <clears throat> the White House? Uh, so Trump is not going to the White House correspondence dinner, and so they scheduled a rally in Pennsylvania that night, which of course. And it's like brilliant counter programming. Like it's the most obvious fucking play. If you could, if you couldn't figure out that if you're not going to the correspondence dinner, you hold a rally to talk about why the correspondence dinner in Washington are terrible. Like you shouldn't be in politics. Also, it's <laughs> of course you is, do that. This is about a comment. This is about DC open mic night. That's what we're talking <laughs> yeah. about. We're talking about we're talking about the president being so concerned about jokes made at his expense at a dinner at the Hinkley Hilton that. 
He's been he took himself out of it. They're planning an event around it. Like building your schedule around the White House Correspondence Center is almost at, is is somehow manages to be more insane than the fact that the president just says fuck it and goes to this dinner normally. Like oh, yeah. It's a dumb, it's a, you know, I don't think it's, a, you know, some people say it should never have existed, whatever. It's a harmless thing that happens. And the president is so thin skinned that they're panicked about it. They're going to send him to Kentucky to be like, those Washington, Pennsylvania. Oh, whatever. I, I, yeah. I, I mean, the, <laughs> oh, boy. The, the, I, don't, the I course, don't do whatever where he's going. I'm not comparing. I mean, I guess the middle of Pennsylvania is the Kentucky of the North. The, the, the Correspondent <laughs> Association loves about these quotes are like, this is a night that celebrates free speech and great. No, it is not. I've been to it many times. It's a night that celebrates celebrity and access and who's the flashiest guest you can get. And it's it's. It's part of. Did the, you get your Vanity Fair invite yet? <laughs> I don't think it's happening. But I mean, there were all these rumors among in the press corps that maybe he was actually going to show up as an OTR and might yeah. sort of save the thing. This does feel like the, a nail in the coffin for this dinner for a very long time. But I don't think that's a bad thing. I also think it goes to show that he's going to go do this rally in Pennsylvania. He's like happy to go to a rally where he can, when he can like beat up on Washington in general. Like he has yet to do a rally where he tries to garner support for a legislative goal of his. Like mm. it's not a rally for health care. It's nope. not a rally for his tax plan. It's not right. a rally for anything. It's a rally to just shit all over like, you know, the insularity of D.C. Oh, not that strategy. Right? <laughs> it really is like sort of it, the, the whole the, the whole culture of the White House does reflect Donald Trump and that like you know, during that whole healthcare period, he did a few rallies, but there's no plan. There's no rollout. There's no, I'm going to announce a bill and then I'm going to talk to these people. I'm going to have a roundtable where we talk about their needs. There's no coherence to any of it ever. It's all little tactics, no strategy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and, all and it look, is. And, that, and that's his fault. You know, for when, sure. he, when he walks up and goes, he's like, yo, we're doing taxes on Wednesday. And the staff's like, what? <laughs> How do you plan a rollout around that? It's, uh, it's our saving ways, grace. In many ways, the culture of the Trump White House and the culture of Washington are perfect for each other. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was going to be a segue to an ad. Oh, no. <laughs> we, we can. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it. Not just cram it down. Not do what generations of New Englanders have done, just stuff their feelings down, maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No, you got to talk to someone, you got to work it out, get it off your chest. And just by doing that, you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. 
Let's All go right. to the polls. Let's go to the polls. A couple polls out uh, on uh, nearing Donald Trump's 100-day marker. Washington Post ABC shows that Trump has a 42% approval rating, which makes him the least popular president in modern times, but one whose own voters remain largely supportive. So 53% disapprove, 43% strongly so, but his approval rating among the people who voted for him, 94%. Among all Republicans, 84%, and only 2%. Uh, of respondents say they regret their vote for Trump. It's a pretty amazing number, given that we can't get like 94% of people to admit that the earth is round. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm still skeptical of it. The, the 2% number doesn't surprise me that much. I mean, like we are as divided an electorate as we're going to be. It's only been 100 days. Frankly, I'm kind of heartened that we got 2% back because that's the election. Um, yeah. But like there is huge erosion in the attributes that people like about him. His numbers on being decisive are down. His marks on honesty are way down. His numbers on changing Washington are way down. If that trend continues or even stays where it is, it makes re-election hard. Now, these, some of these polls pitted him against Hillary Clinton, which is a ridiculous Stupid. thing to do. Wait, well, except she's going to be our nominee again. Well, maybe, <laughs> so you, you probably a good idea to get ahead of it. Like there is a massive, there's a, you take a huge hit once you lose. <laughs> like, of course your voters are going to say, I'm not going to vote for her again. So that's just completely stupid. Disappointing but, question. It, it's. I, I think it shows that resistance efforts have been pretty damn effective. I mean, yeah, here's the thing. So the rating, the, the one that I'm watching is approval rating among Trump voters who were somewhat enthusiastic or less excited about supporting him. 88% uh, and 79% of those say he understands their problems. Those are still fairly good numbers, but that's chipping away. Those are the voters that are going to swing the election next time. The people who are, um, some, well... Two groups of voters, the voters who didn't vote or voted for third party candidates, and then the voters who unenthusiastically voted for Trump. That's sort of the the universe of people we're looking at here. I also think it's especially on questions of do you still think what you used to think? Are you still right about what you did before? People don't like to admit that they fucked something up. I don't like admitting I'm wrong to you two. Yeah, <laughs> and I never do it. That's why you don't. And I'm and and I'm often wrong. Look, I think the number we have to the, the interesting number here is if the election were held again today, you know, forty three percent for Trump, forty percent for Clinton. So everyone looked at that number and said, "Oh my God, he beats he beats Clinton." They're like, "Whatever, it, Clinton's not running again, so that's that." But he is he is just okay. We get it. His, his re-election number is sitting at forty three percent. That is nowhere close to what he needs. I also just like. 2018, people. I'm done. To, I don't want to talk about 2020. It's so far right, away. Right. 2018. Donald but, Trump being unpopular is the most important thing, not because he's going to lose re-election, but because he helps us win the House in 2018. There's one interesting comment on the poll that I want to dig into. Oliver Darcy, uh, who's a media reporter, looked at the 2% regret number, the high approval rating among his base, and said, you know, until unless Hannity and Fox and Drudge and the right-wing Republican media turns against him, the base isn't going to. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. For sure. Like, if most of these people every day are waking up and getting their news from sources that are saying that Donald Trump is the best thing on earth and has never done anything wrong, why would they think he's done nothing wrong? Unless they give him a lot, unless it's like three, four years down the road and they look around their communities and don't see jobs coming back and don't see their lives improved, then maybe they're going to give it a second look. But right now, every every piece of information they're consuming is telling them that Donald Trump's doing a great job. Yeah, state where media works. It's the reason it's so popular. Right? Yeah, I, though, I mean, look, if... if I can't believe I'm saying this, but if he keeps losing the info wars of the world, that will hurt him. Right. No, that will. That I is think the that's only for sure. place we the crazy, crazy far right. We've seen some erosion. 
Oh, yeah. Right. Paul, his boy Paul Watson is all upset about Syria. Yeah, look, no. I mean, this is why the globalists taking over or not. It's not yeah. very good for her, for the, the base. They're cucking Infowars. The cu- <laughs> <laughs> um, the NBC Wall Street Journal poll was similar to the Washington Post. 40% approve, 54% disapprove. Uh, it was weaker than their February poll. Um, but, Tommy, you referenced this earlier. There was a very interesting question in that poll that uh, they've been asking since 1996. The question is, do you think government should do more to solve problems and help meet people's needs? Or do you think government is doing too many things better left to businesses and individuals. In 1995, more than 60% said do less and a little over 30% said do more. During the Obama years, it was pretty close and it actually traded back and forth around the 50% marker. Today, it was 57% say government should do more, the highest ever in the poll, including 59% of independents. So what do we think that what do you think that means? What do you think that says about Trump, Republicans, Democrats? Anyone have thoughts? I don't know. I I think it's uh it's interesting. I, I think that's the, I don't know. I, so, I, the, so, the one thing I would say is uh, Obamacare being threatened and people being worried about their health care and seeing it through the lens of a Republican administration pot- potentially attacking the government's ability to help them get affordable care, yeah. I think is maybe a, maybe an interesting part of that. Yeah, and it makes you question the ability of the Tea Party to run hard on an anti-government platform. I mean, certainly right. that that seems like it would not be in any way effective. It also makes you wonder if Trump's refusal to do sort of the basic things in government, like, I don't know, appoint anyone to work at HUD, to appoint anyone to work under Rex Tillerson, to get any sort of policy staff in place that can make government sort of be basic and competent. Like, if hearing about that might over time erode people's faith, that's a Probably not going to happen because, God forbid, someone reads the paper. But I, I think it says that Paul Ryan's agenda is a disaster. Totally. It is a political disaster. It is, And that's why Donald Trump did not run on Paul Ryan's agenda or the traditional Republican agenda. He, try, he, he pretended to run as a populist, nationalist, someone who was going to have government do more for people. Right. And it's also an opening for Democrats to not be afraid in talking about activist government because people do want the government to provide basic protections, um, whether it's about the environment, whether it's reducing income inequality, whether it's providing for education, like those things are still popular, which is why Trump said things like pretended to say things like he wasn't cutting Medicare and Social Security. Like he broke with Republican orthodoxy on the campaign trail in those areas about government activism. Yeah. So I I talked to Beto O'Rourke, who's campaigning against Ted Cruz in Texas and he's running to become a Democratic senator from Texas. And he's polling, you know, it's early polls, but he's polling even with Ted Cruz. And he was just openly talking about how he thinks that we need to move to single pair. Yeah. And I think that's a good example of a shift. You know, the we don't need to be. A, I think that the, you know, the era of big government is over way of thinking, you know, is dead, is dead. That that people recognize that in, in an economy that has changed this much, that has created this much uncertainty and anxiety for people. That's this dynamic that like we need a strong uh, public sector that helps people provides a strong safety net that 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 sort of evens out these sort of vicissitudes, whatever. Yeah, people want competent government, right? They want a TSA. <clears throat> they want competent government. They want a TSA that will keep dogs away from Mark Halpern in first class <laughs> when he just wants to be left alone. Okay, that's what people want. Oh my God, what a journey! Like but, that's why when, that's why when Barack Obama when when healthcare.gov got rolled out and it was a total fiasco, like that is what drove him insane was basic government encompassing services. If we can get past that, if we can make it work and prevent Republicans from starving it of resources that then make it ineffective so they can further chop it down, people like that. Well, it's interesting. You're making an argument. You're saying that the poll is more about people wanting competent government than activist government, which are two different things. I don't know. It could be It could be both. It could be some mix of... But I, I do think, look, people don't want fucking Paul Ryan's big tax cuts starve the government agenda. It's hard to get that through sort of the D.C. establishment thinking because D.C. thinking is still 
primarily Republican establishment thinkers. One reason this might be changing, actually, is there's now three positions, right? That no longer the kind of the Paul Ryan orthodoxy versus Democratic orthodoxy. It's Democratic orthodoxy versus Paul Ryan orthodoxy versus Donald Trump. And two out of the three of those have a view a very strong role for the federal government. Mm. Another statistic from the poll that will segue into our next segment about Democrats in disarray. <laughs> I'm ready. Uh, 67% of people said the Democratic Party is out of touch with Americans. That is slightly more, slightly more than said Republicans were out of touch with Americans and more than said Donald Trump was out of touch with Americans. So if you rank them, it would be Democrats are the worst, then Republicans, then Trump. And I think I agree with that. You think Democrats are more out of touch with Americans than Republicans? Yes. Really? Yeah. Why? I don't know. Something to say. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, it's not about policy. It's about, look, I'll tell you one reason I think it, we've lost everywhere. Now, Republicans may not be offering solutions that will actually help people, but they have figured out a language to talk to people that, they, that resonates with the them. the Republican Party has? The Republican Party? Absolutely. I think, uh, we have no I guess governorship. Here's what I'm saying. They have 33 governorships. They have all the state legislatures. They have all the branches of government. What, what are you talking about? Of course they're more in touch with regular people. That means they win. That doesn't mean they're necessarily more in touch. Uh, well, I don't know what it means, but people are looking at a Democrat versus a Republican all across the country, and they're choosing the Republican. Look, I'm saying that Democrats definitely are out of touch with people. The party has a problem. And clearly, in the last race, people thought Donald Trump was more in touch than Hillary Clinton was. That's what swung the election. I don't know that I would think that Republicans are somehow more in touch with the American people than Democrats are. I don't believe that. All I'm looking at is the fact that we are losing elections up and down the board oh, everywhere. Oh, yeah, of course we are. And there has to be a reason for that because it's certainly not – we would not say that it's because Republicans are offering better policies. So clearly Republicans have a language for relating to people that is far more successful than what we have, right? Well, what does it mean to lose elections? Other, what does it mean to lose know, elections like over and over factors. again other than the fact that we're out of touch? But it's not just gerrymandering because we're losing at the state level, right? We're losing everywhere. Well, how did Barack Obama win twice? He's more in touch than Donald Trump, the Democratic Party, or the Republican Party. Clearly, both parties have enormous problems. <laughs> right, right. right. Neither of them are liked. I think the status quo probably the status quo probably has a pretty big messaging problem. Period. Right. For like, sure. Getting tossed out, no matter what party you're in, you hate Washington. You're sick of what's been going on. I mean, this is sort of a lot of this conversation is predicated off a, a New York Times piece about a quote unity stop in Nebraska where Democrats right. end up fighting over whether a, a mayoral candidate should be pro-choice or can be anti-choice in the Democratic Party. Right. Um, nationalizing municipal elections like that is always going to lead to ruptures like this. Yeah. Well, but hold on, though. I want a, a better answer to the question then. It's one thing to say, yes, Democrats are losing up and down. Of course we are. We've, we've had a horrible run from below the federal level, uh, below the presidential level, right? But like, what policies do you think make Democrats more out of touch than Republicans? That's a different question. No, I guess that's the question I want to know. Yeah, so, I, I think I think the answer, Democrats are more out of touch than Republicans because Democrats are losing, thus they are more out of touch, is sort of a weird way out of that question. Yeah, I mean, it begs the question. But I guess what I'd say is, so uh, you know what I was thinking about when I saw this, that 67% of Democrats, I, I tweeted about the fact that like we shouldn't ignore this number. This right. is a really important number. Right. And what was amazing to me is how everybody responded with their own personal explanation. Like, I got so many different reasons for what it means for Democrats to be out of touch. One reason is, oh, we don't know how to talk to Trump voters. Uh, the other right. is, we're enamored of the Hillary Clinton wing and we're not listening to the Bernie people. The other is that we're doing too much identity politics and it's alienating people, right? Mm. Like, or we're, we're too, it's the neoliberals and they've taken over the party. Like, every explanation has been offered. And I totally. think my answer, my response is like, yes. Like, those are all the reasons that that we're, the policy options that we're offering people But some of those are, are very it, contradictory. There's got, we, what I guess all I'm trying to say here is at some point this party or the people who make up this party have to come to a conclusion about what we need to say and believe 
going forward and what we do say and believe going forward and what issues we believe in. And, and like, I feel like we have been focused so much on personalities. There's this Bernie versus Hillary fight and not enough on like the issues and, and the values that we believe as a party. It's like it was easier when the, when the party was divided back in the uh, in 05 and 06. It was like over whether you support or didn't support the Iraq war. Which did become this overmagnified thing, but it, like at least that was a war. Like you were either for or against a war. It was an issue. You could be on one side or the other. Right now, it is even hard to figure out what it is we're arguing about. Because like you said, you said the Democrats are out of touch, and you got a million different answers about why. Many of them contradictory. They weren't. It's not all true. It's I, it's too much identity politics. Or Bernie Sanders is it, like there's a whole bunch of people criticizing Bernie, right? So it's like well, you get, I would say no, but the, so that this is where I come down. That like. That the burning critique of the Democratic Party is accurate, that the party doesn't sound enough like it's fighting for working people. And he has a language for how to do that as part. And so there's a language question, right? That's part of the reason why I'm out of touch. Is that but, a, that's a language question, not a policy question. And but as part of that, there's also a deeper policy question that I think is represented by that few that is sometimes represented in that divide, but not always. It's sort of a it's sort of a kind of it's a connected but different, distinct fight. Right. Like so, you know, affordable college or single payer. Right. These are fights that are linked to that conversation about fighting for the working class. But there's a world in which Tom Perez could sound just as tough on the wealthy in this country, but embrace a more moderate agenda, right? There's a world in which that could kind of be one way to bridge the divide. So I think that these fights are all connected. By the way, on the identity politics fight, like, I think that's part of it. So people like, oh, you know, that the Hillary Clinton campaign was fought too much on love Trump's hate and and social issues, but, but and that Bernie doesn't care about those issues. Well, I don't believe that that divide is actually there. I think that there's a way in which we don't need to, to say that talking about sexism and talking about feminism and talking about trans rights and talking about gay rights and all the rest and choice has to mean that we can't also be a party that's like very working class focused. Like I think we can do both of those things. So you, when you say we're out of touch, you believe that it is the language that we're using or an like what what about us is like of all the explanations you got, what what do you why I what per- do you believe the answer is for why we're out of touch? I think that the Bernie critique is largely correct that the Democratic Party has lost touch with a language and policy, set of policies that are simple, easy to digest, and that people understand are for them. That's my sort of view. But what about his policies? Like, do you like? I guess what I'm trying to get at is, Bernie and Hillary argued over a $12 minimum wage versus a $15 minimum wage. They argued about a public option on the road to maybe Medicare for all versus Medicare for all, right? And so it's like, do you think that these issue debates are the salient debates in the party, or do you think it is a question of how we speak, what we emphasize when we're out there, message, whatever? Because so I think it's an here's interesting what I question. I think, I'm not sure, but I do think that the reason Hillary Clinton, this is why it's hard to articulate, I think the reason Hillary Clinton felt that in order to appeal to Bernie voters while still maintaining whatever her seriousness and responsibility was, that she had to take Bernie's $15 minimum wage and put it through a machine that came out as a $12 minimum wage where states could go up to 15 blah, 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 where we take the Bernie proposal on on college and then put it through the kind of democratic think tank machine. And what comes out of the other end is a much more complicated but less expensive version. Like that policy apparatus, I think, is broken because it's built for a kind of governing majority. Like it means that what pumps out of the democratic institutions are these kind of feel like they've already been through a budget reconciliation process because a lot of these are institutions that were built around governing, whether they came out during the Clinton administration or they kind of a lot of these are people that were policy experts that came up during the Obama administration. And I think a party in the 
the wilderness and a party that is trying to show people that will fight for them is a party that should embrace big, simple ideas that don't necessarily always need to be practical and that say to people like, we're going to go really hard and we're not going to worry about what the donors think. We're not going to worry about what the wealthy, moderate backers of the party think. We're going to fight for working people for big programs that you will see personal benefits from easily that aren't a crazy, means-tested, complicated, jury-rigged tax code. Okay. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to pick a date on the calendar, and we're going to stop relitigating the primary in the frame of Bernie versus Hillary. Because that's not how we viewed politics or the Democratic Party at all until very recently. And we're going to stop relitigating whether it was friggin' Jim Comey that lost the election for us, or whether the media is to blame, or whether it was Hillary's staff and not going to Wisconsin. We're going to figure out what do we care about most? What do we stand for? What are our values? And we're going to talk about that Every day from now on, like this is a valuable conversation to have. But like the conversation that's happening on Twitter between like the Hillary people and the Bernie bros and the reporters taking them out of context is like toxic. It's infuriating. It's turning off everybody. Nuts. Well, this I mean, love it. I'm glad that we got into this here because I think what started setting me off about your initial response to the question was I am very, very tired. Very, and I'm not saying you do this. I'm very tired of people. They think that all they need to do, their only responsibility, is to take a shot at the Democratic Party being losers, and then we can like move on and say, like, the Democratic establishment is horrible, and I'm for changing the Democratic establishment, and that's it. And it's like, yeah, of course, it's easy to say that the Democratic Party has done pretty poorly over the last eight years, aside from the presidential level. I think the much harder challenge is figuring out how we get back to winning, yes. what policies we stand for, what values we talk about, and how we talk about what we want to do. And I and I don't think that either one of the sides has all the answers to for that. For sure. I totally agree with that. I think and that's... I do think we are, and I know our party, and I know what we believe in, and we are way more in touch with what more Americans want than Republicans. Of course. Of course. That goes without saying. I guess the that's that's why this is so important. And like, I, like we should not be relitigating 2016. It's an incredibly stupid conversation. All the answers are right. Hillary wasn't a good candidate. Comey was a terrible influence on the election. Uh, there was a policy problem. There was a, a media, every answer, there was sexism. All of it's true. So we don't need to have that conversation. But the divide between the Bernie wing and the kind of Tom Perez wing now, whatever, the establishment of the party is a real one and an important one. And for me, like all that I'm trying to figure out and think through, and I don't have all the answers at all. I don't know exactly what to do. But I agree that like as a party, we are more in touch. We have better policies. I don't think that the best policies, I don't think we've solved all the answers, but like we're a better party, but we're losing. And I think we need to ask ourselves why. And it's a really important question. And the one thing I do see is that Bernie at least has a theory of the case. He's the only person out there like, this is a direction you can go. Try this. Yeah, I can't get past the fact that we put forward a candidate in the last election who was the standard bearer for our party that was largely perceived as out of touch for a variety of reasons, you know, fair and unfair. And mm-hmm. this poll, while we have a lot of work to do, is probably a big legacy of that. The thing that I, I will think about that video, so the Chris Hayes video where Bernie says we should go after the billionaires and the millionaires and then Tom Perez refuses to agree, I, I'll think about that video for a while, not because I thought, I think Tom Perez is going to be a great chair of the DNC, but because Tom Perez didn't seem like he had the words, like he didn't have a language for how to talk about these issues in a way that could appeal to Bernie people, but without giving up on the kind of larger coalition that the Democrats need to have. And like that to me is the problem. Well, and that's what I'm because thinking about. Tom Perez in that video. We talked about this, love it, but what Bernie should have said, or what I would have agreed with, is saying the ruling class in this country has not 
passed policies or helped push for policies that would help working people, and it's bad that they have done that. What Bernie said is the ruling class's greed has destroyed America. You know, <laughs> like, right. and I think that like Tom Perez, that probably caught Tom Perez off guard, and he said I disagree with that, but he didn't want to disagree with it because he was too afraid. Because now he's in this position where he's afraid of everything and he's going to be cautious, so he gives some namby pamby language about like hope on the ballot, which was sounded absurd. <laughs> right, I feel like he got <laughs> stuck. Know? Right, he got stuck and he didn't handle well, it well. Because people are so afraid to say any to say that Bernie's language might be a little too hot sometimes. Right, right. Terrified of that because right. then and the base goes crazy. Fa- and it's yeah. not even the base. It's like it's Twitter folks who, you know, want to keep relitigating this primary and feel very aggrieved. There's absolutely a, a need to improve the conversation and the language we use. But I also think there's this like there's this very small minority that's very loud and still very pissed about this primary that will like chop you down the minute you say anything that goes against what Bernie right. says or stands for. And I think that's toxic as well. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I agree with that completely. I, I'm just open to anything because we are in such dire straits. Yeah, Donald look, Trump is president. We've lost the country. So how do we solve it? Yep, for sure. Soul searching is required. And there's a well, yeah, and there's a lot on our side, and we have the better argument, so we should figure out a way to fucking make it. You know. Okay. When we're back, we will have Teen Vogue columnist, freelance journalist Lauren Duca. This is Pod Save America. Stick around. There's more great show coming your way. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. On the pod with us today, we are very excited to have the author of Teen Vogue's Thigh High Politics column, award-winning journalist, Lauren Duca. Lauren, welcome to Pod Save America. Hello. Thank you for having me. You guys have a lot of fans. Um, I have to say hi to, like, a lot of people. I don't know. <laughs> I know are listening. I, I'm not going to let them down, I hope. Do you think Tucker is one of them? Does he wish you congratulations yet? <laughs> oh, he actually is unsure who I am. He, I maybe work for Team Glamour. I saw that. remember. What a clown. So. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that. I heard him say that he was like he wanted to be mean to you, which was just very, uh, very classy. And that, and that I am the type of person who says go with God, and everyone else is an infidel. That was another, another. <laughs> Unbelievable. So I'm sort of like a. I don't know. I think I'm like a Christian crusader figure in that, and that was me. But I don't know. <laughs> um, so Lauren, we were just talking about this divide in the Democratic Party. And what it means going forward. And um, we talked a little bit about uh, sort of Bernie campaigning with uh, Heath Mellow in Omaha and the Ossoff stuff and sort of what I noticed that you tweeted that sort of Senator Sanders, um, you know, should not have campaigned with with Mellow. Um, 
What do you think? Do you think there's room? And then, like, later Nancy Pelosi said, of course, there's room in the party for pro-life Democrats, even though she's very, very pro-choice. Um, what do you think about that? Do you think there's room in the resistance or room in the party for people with, like, differing views on this? Or where do you come down on all this? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on the issue. And this is not one of them, especially coming off of criticizing Ossoff for being impure. Yeah. It's such an inopportune moment for it to then be like, oh, this is just another issue. I think reproductive rights are pretty fundamental to any kind of serious progressive pro-social agenda. It doesn't seem like something that we can just treat as a one-off. And it's strange because I saw so much framing of it where it was, well, this comes down to that great divide of identity politics and economic policy. And I would push back on that because abortion allows women to have the economic freedom to better support themselves in the kind of pro-social system that Bernie is fighting for. And it's interesting because there was always such a divide in his own rhetoric where I think he didn't quite much his economic agenda with his feelings on identity politics. And I think everybody always believed he was so kind of true to those issues. So this feels like a really shocking portrayal that I don't think even his his supporters uh, were ready for. So that's interesting that you kind of put it you sort of put it next to what he did on Ossoff, which I which I think is is a valid critique. I guess the question would be what would happen if Bernie said, I'm embracing somebody like Heath Mello, I'm also embracing somebody like John Ossoff. This needs to be a big party that has a lot of different people uh uh, moving in the same direction, but not always agreeing. Yeah, I think I don't. I think it's it's valid, and yet there has to be some staples, or it feels like what are we unifying exactly? And it's just strange to have like a. So, are we always supporting everyone? Because it seems like he was lukewarm on Osof at best, and then he kind of came around and was like, I, I, whatever he said to kind of correct it. But it just, it seems like he's playing up the kind of the cult of personality criticism he gets. It feels like what's been happening. And it's, it's just more divi- division at a time when we're just as divided as they are. So do, do you disagree with Pelosi's take on this, that, you know, she's worked in Congress with a number of pro-choice Democrats and it, the party needs to be big enough, in her opinion? Because I was, I was struck by how... Uh, I think it was on Meet the Press, how strongly she came out in defense of, of a Big Ten approach. Well, I think that, I actually think Tom Perez kind of got it right when he was said, you can personally be anti-choice, mm-hmm. but if you pursue policy. And I mean, I guess to be fair, you know, in Omaha, we're not hearing about policies that are going to enact this belief. And that, but there is, there was the past ultrasound legislation. So it's complicated. And, you know, it's like, how do you, what, what other metric is there for knowing someone's future pattern of behavior from their past one? And I don't think it's always what they say. So, I, I mean, it's just really tough because it, if that's a place where you can be swayed, if that's your personal belief, and I think there's a difference, especially for politicians, obviously, from having a personally held belief and broadcasting that belief and acting on it in legislation, and it becomes a fine line. So, I mean, I think it's a it's a matter of ultimately the position and what we what the entire kind of women's rights movement and Planned Parenthood and leadership needs to better emphasize is that anybody is welcome to be personally pro-life and pro-choice. It's about allowing for the right and the legislation. So I think that there needs to really be a hard red line on that because that, that's not up for debate. 
um, in terms of the, the right and the choice. And so I think we get caught up in the belief system. Obviously, religion just has like some kind of armored octopus around this entire conversation. But yeah, sorry. I hope I answered the question. I you guess did. I get riled up yeah, about that. You did. Yeah, better um, than we did. <laughs> so. Last night when you uh, accepted uh, your Shorty Award, <laughs> congratulations. Thank um, you. You said, without the truth, we have no foundation from which to resist. So, yeah. Which is great. So, you you know, you have embraced this role as, you know, a journalist who, you know, I, and you're a columnist too, so obviously put a lot of your opinions in your column, um, that is very, you know, uh, identified with sort of the resistance against Trump. How do you balance yeah. that out, right? The, the, the need to do journalism and to discover the truth, but also be unafraid to talk about your own views? Because, I mean, we deal with that here at Crooked Media all sure. the time, and I'm wondering sort of how, how, you, how you reconcile those things. So I have really strong feelings about this, um, and I think they are hard to navigate, and I'm sure that I never get it perfect, and thankfully that's why I have editors um, who are able to uh, correct beyond my self-correction and maybe sometimes say, use the word regime a little less. Please, please, <laughs> that kind of thing. But um, ultimately, I'm uh, I'm kind of out as a progressive, uh, as a feminist, as a, a, I have a voice that contains my opinion, but I think I still hold myself to uh, objectivity of method in the way I lay out my facts and the way I choose them, and I try my absolute hardest to uh, take a full look at the situation and to provide what I think is the most honest representation of whatever issue I'm working on. And um, I want to, I, I always try to show my work. So if I'm choosing certain, certain examples, I make it clear why I'm picking certain quotes. I don't want to be part of, you know, a kind of journalism of affirmation that is just arming people with 20 more bullets for their machine gun for their contentious fight that they have with some idiot libertarian. Like, that's not what I want to be doing. <laughs> that's um, not what anybody wants I, to be doing. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, sometimes some people, you know, even on on our side, I think we are, there's a lot of focus, especially right now, about Fox, right? But, like, none of the TV news is getting it right, frankly. The best shows are comedy shows. Like, Zampi and John Oliver are way more journalistically <laughs> disciplined than some of the things that we even see on CNN or MSNBC. And like, there's obviously exceptions, but, like, even figures like Rachel Maddow or Keith Olbermann, like, who are, you know, not quite as conspiratorially nutty as what we're seeing at Fox, it's, they're still just, like, there's a hand thumb on the scales. And so, anyway, I, I'm very voicey. I say often wacky things reflecting my opinions, and I curse, and I'm a little, like, I don't know if anyone really knows how to make sense of that kind of person is a journalist, and so my answer to them is this. I have a commitment to journalism as an institution that is meant to empower the public with information that is as truthful as possible, and I think that a lot of the distrust in media lately comes down to uh, an overcorrecting for bias, where we've all sort of, as an industry, lost our way because, you know, it's, it's trying to present the truth as if it's a math equation and <laughs> as if female, female, female equals banning Muslims uh, being accused of sexual assault at uh, just entire laundry list Costco long size amount of things that Donald Trump did during the campaign and when it comes to headlines it's just it's distortion in and of itself and it's, it's meant to kind of overcorrect for this like liberal media expectation but it's, it's similarly dishonest and 
I mean, you know, there are definitely times when I need to be corrected by editors, and I don't always get it right, and I'm a human being, and I feel the things I feel probably too strongly sometimes. But uh, trying to have that objectivity of method when I'm showing my work, I guess, really is how I feel that I deserve to be called. You know, a journalist and not just a writer or a, a teen blogger, which is what Carl uh, Bernstein called me back on CNN one time. <laughs> uh, I think of the, uh, the Harry yeah. Styles defense of uh, teen girls and their taste. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, he thought, he thought, he asked if I was a teen. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. To, be, to be fair, probably anyone under the like. 73 looks like a team to Carl Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, one thing that I think is, you know, you talked about how hard it is on the left to not sort of, you know, just sort of whatever, create more arrows for people to fire. With Trump being such a strange case, an outlandish case that does so many things wrong, that does so many things that are unusual. I think especially on stories like Russia, we do see liberal writers and liberal journalists kind of taking everything to 10. You know, and saying, you know, that the, the, and and taking every rumor and taking every kind of potential source and an anonymous quote into sort of another example of some nefarious thing when we don't necessarily know. Like, how do we push back against that side of things when we when we're so concerned about all the things Trump is doing and it's so hard to know what's normal, what's unusual and, 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 and when he really is a threat? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's kind of a primary function of a journalist in an inform- this information age. Like, there's not a gatekeeping role anymore. There's not a holding back, and I'm kind of just, like, quoting elements of journalism here, but, you know, maybe a few more people in the media should reread that book because it's... So there's not... We're not deciding, well, what negative information should the public learn today. Everyone knows everything, and they're walking into every story with prior knowledge almost 100% of the time. So I think that the, the role becomes obviously verification first and foremost, but, and then maybe discounting, um, obviously given just the level of deception from this administration. But then the kind of analysis, I think that that, that new journalism of, of helping to weight things and helping to sort out the significance of, uh, and knowing and having the 10, when the 10 needs to happen, I mean, it's just like, it's, it's kind of, the, an easiest way to talk about this is like Dan Rather's Facebook status is like the only fucking thing that's like truly trustworthy to like a huge project from the people anymore and it's shocking I mean I know my mom has a master's degree and bought a Washington Post story with fake news and I just don't understand how it's gotten to this point where just people who are actually like a little tapped out of media are so easily fooled and so the, the role has to become about about waiting and presenting information and using our best judgment and and not like pulling a Comey and like trying to make everyone feel okay about everything and and not being truthful <laughs> and, and, and ultimately you know just like make, it's not it's not PR journalism is not PR and so it, it has to be about it you have to use your personal system of ethics and and have an objectivity with the way that you're working through those problems and obviously there's going to be human error because humans that are doing this. But uh, I don't know. I don't know how else to gain back trust. I think that that we have to go with our gut and not uh, fulfilling expectations. Um, Lauren, I, I don't want to relitigate the election, but some days I, I sit and think we elected a man who was accused of sexual assault by yeah. a dozen women. And I'm wondering if you have reflections on what you hear from young women in your reporting or think personally about 
what message that sends, like how what what that means for us culturally. Is this another thing that society says, you know, that that's how it is? Like, how are people dealing with that fact that this monster is in the White House? Yeah, well, I have met a lot of college students lately, and um, they're all so, everyone I've met has just been so brilliant and capable and exciting, and I I hope that that's what I would have been like, um, you know, at age 20 in this moment. I I probably would have been just, like, drinking extra Mike Sards, I don't know, but, like, they're incredible. (laughs) Um, But I the thing that I keep seeing on college campuses, too, which I guess we all know about, um, but is tons of rape. And it's sort of insane that these young women are being told on online and then just sort of as a group that they don't have access to a political conversation, that, you know, they can't have not serious and non-serious interests. That's just kind of like the rhetoric overall. And then also, like, that it's okay, that, that, that their whole role in life is to kind of just hit the highest possible number on a scale of 1 to 10 and, like, feel deserving of being grabbed, I, I guess. I know that's, that's just what's being protected in, in a very, that's a very literal read of, of things that have been said. And to, to be dealing with that and being told also that they're overly sensitive and that they're triggered snowflakes. And obviously I, I've lived through this narrative in a really, like, hyper-intense way, but it's just, Stop telling us that we're too sensitive. I don't understand what that scrambling technique is because it's it, it's it's working. So I don't know how to push past it. But beyond using my platform today, it's unbelievable that we just kind of continue to live in a world where men rape and kill and grope and sexually harass women frequently without any repercussions. And in one major case. Um, while winning the White House, but then even like God, Bill O'Reilly is going to make more money than an entire family would make in a generation right. in a lifetime after this. I mean, it's just Gross. it's the ultimate thing that I think is is the lack of repercussions on this level, and then you know the tie to college rape because college rape is the conversation because it's just obviously a microcosm of what a, a generalized danger that women feel outside in the world, and the the tie I wanted to make is just that there are never any repercussions and there's sort of like an awareness a hypersensitive awareness of this danger and of this possibility working in the distance and that's sort of like been condoned in the biggest possible way and I I it's I, I don't understand how if that's me being overly sensitive then I'm overly sensitive I guess yeah, well, I don't know. <laughs> we should we should all be so overly sensitive. Um, I mean, the good news. What I saw as a hopeful sign is that you know the fact that yeah, it's it's gross. Bill Riley, Bill Riley is going to go off into the sunset and make a whole bunch of money. Um, but the fact that he's off the air was the result of you know a lot of people speaking up and and pressuring advertisers and and not yeah. the result of the Murdochs. Those creeps right. spun this so hard in the New York Times. It was such unbelievable bullshit that that reporter <laughs> took that fucking spin. This was a financial decision that yeah. that, that is garbage it's to give so those guys crazy. credit. It's so crazy. It's like we just were so overwhelmed by the fact that you knew what we knew for years. <laughs> Way to comply with the law, guys. Thanks for that. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. And they also renewed his contract after the Times revelation. Right. right. So. Uh, but no, but so, so it shows that it was a result but, of, of activism and speaking out, which is great. 
And I think it's funny because it's like we these egregious examples are obviously never a good thing, but in a way they become something that finally it's like okay, the odorless gas of sexism and misogyny can now just be a bullseye right. that people can rally around. And it's like, is there definitely some backlash to Trump contained in that forcefulness of that media firestorm that made 50 advertisers back out? I mean, there's latent anger in there, and I, yeah. that anger needs to keep going. Like, in order for this to be kind of like the last gasping breath of a white supremacist patriarchy, like, people need to stay angry, and, like, phone calls are really good, but... Let's just think overall about how we can be vigilantly tending to democracy and not let this be a fed or a moment um, because the second any we get quiet, it will fester and continue and it's going to be tough, but keep fucking fighting. Well said. Lauren, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. Uh, really you appreciate guys. you coming on and we will uh, and come back again soon. I would love to. Thank you so much. Sorry for talking so much. No, <laughs> that's perfect. That's, sort of the goal. That's why we had you here. It's a podcast. It's a, it's a podcast. You're that's what award, we do here. Yeah, you're an award-winning journalist. We're three idiots. <laughs> Take care. Safe flight. Bye. Bye-bye. That's all the time we have here on Pod Save America. Wouldn't that be a fun sign-off? That's all the time we have. We have as much time as we want. Exactly. We can record till, we record till the sun dies. Bill's looking out the window like, get out of my house. <laughs> um, Bill, Bill's having a great time. He laughs. I, I always check. Bill's my gut check. I look in the booth, and if Bill's laughing, I know that I'm doing a great job. Look, uh, you, you uh, it's all seat. about you. <laughs> you got a better seat. Look, we had a good conversation here. We fixed the Democratic issue. Party. We did it. We should, we should keep doing this, because that's the harder conversation to have. It's easier to just read the news and laugh. It's going to be a lot harder to fix these problems. I felt it was good. I felt like we talked it through some hard things. Now let's get back to Twitter where everyone will hate on us. Yeah, I know. We're going to have a lot of problems it's be bad. on Twitter. Ah, whatever. Come at me, bro. Just yeah, just know that I don't care. Just, <laughs> just know that all of our thoughts weren't expressed and, in an hour yeah, podcast. We didn't Even express in an hour all podcast. our thoughts and the thoughts we did express. We're just trying to work our, we're working our way through these feelings, too. We're trying to figure it out. You know, guys? You know what? It's in progress. Yeah. Pod Save America, in progress. <laughs> Thank you, Lauren Duca, for joining us. And we will see you again soon. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.